Hello, and welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Dr. Lina Hatib. Lina has just been appointed director of the SOAS Middle East Institute. She moved to SOAS from Chatham House, where she's been the director of the Middle East and North Africa program. Lina is an international expert on policy, security, and culture in the Middle East, and I'm delighted to have her back on the podcast. Lina, congratulations on your new position. Thank you very much. Um, we, we had talked about Syria a few weeks ago, uh, that we should uh, have that conversation on the podcast. But then, of course, there's been that terrible earthquake, uh, earthquakes rather, in Turkey and Syria. And as awful as it is in Turkey, it's that much worse in Syria with huge difficulties getting humanitarian aid to victims. What can you say about the current situation and why it's proving so challenging? Well, the current situation in northwest Syria is very much to do with the broader context, because you have a context in which around four million people have uh, fled other areas in Syria, heading to that area. It's densely populated. They live very much in shoddy or lived in shoddy structures, uh, which, of course, became more vulnerable um, when the earthquake struck. You have a context in which people in northwest Syria have very limited access to aid because there was only one border crossing allowed to be open between Turkey and Syria until not too long ago. And of course, continuing bombing by the Syrian regime and Russia in that in that area that actually some reports say did not stop in the immediate aftermath of the uh, earthquakes. So you have a cocktail of humanitarian catastrophes all present in northwest Syria, uh, in addition to other politicization that has meant that northwest Syria has just not been receiving as much humanitarian assistance in the aftermath of the earthquakes as other areas affected. And yet the situation, as you say, is 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 that much worse. Do you think there's a, a lack of awareness internationally on just how awful the situation is in, in Syria? Syria fell off the news radar for a while, um, especially since the Russian uh, attack on Ukraine began almost a year ago. Um, But even before that, unfortunately, public attention and media attention tends to be directed at the hottest of conflicts and the hottest of bad news. And because the Syrian conflict had been going on for so long, it kind of fell off the public attention radar. Um, But the misery in northwest Syria and other areas in Syria and of Syrians in general who have been affected by the conflict has not stopped. And maybe the intensity of the bombing lessened a little bit. um, And maybe the intensity of the conflict in general lessened a little bit, but the suffering certainly did not lessen. And so the earthquakes have now reminded us of what, sadly, the international community had been ignoring for all this time. Mm. And and you mentioned that there is some question that the bombing may have even continued after the earthquake. Yeah, there was at least one report that I that I saw about one area uh, that continued to be bombed on Monday, the same day that the earthquakes uh, happened and that the bombing took place after the earthquakes happened. I have not been able to independently verify that that report, but 
judging by the behavior of Russia and the Syrian regime, I wouldn't be surprised if that had happened. Mm. And do you think that Bashar al-Assad will weaponize aid in order to fulfill his ambition to crush that last rebel enclave of Idlib? The earthquakes came as a gift for Assad because this is an area that Assad and his air force along with the Russians had been bombing persistently for the longest time. I mean, since Russia joined this conflict militarily in 2015, northwest Syria has been the main area that they have been targeting. And so the earthquake came, or the earthquakes rather, because there's two earthquakes. The earthquakes came to in a way, help with the destruction that the Assad regime and Russia hoped would happen. And so on a tactical military level, the Assad regime is finding the earthquakes actually quite useful. On a political level, the Syrian regime is trying to weaponize the aftermath of the earthquakes to try to get out of international isolation. So, for example, Assad and his senior officials are saying international sanctions imposed by the West, by the EU and the US, need to be lifted because they are hampering the delivery of humanitarian aid. This narrative is actually false because these sanctions have always carried an exemption for humanitarian assistance. And the West is actually one of the biggest donors to humanitarian uh, aid in Syria, in both regime and non-regime areas. So the regime is trying to also say the aid that is coming from abroad should only flow through Damascus and through official Syrian government channels rather than being sent directly to the northwest. And this is another way for the regime to try to achieve de facto normalization uh, with the international community. It is trying to present itself as the legitimate uh, power in charge of Syria. So again, the first reaction by the Syrian presidency to the uh, earthquakes was not to declare a state of emergency in Syria or even to express condolences to the Syrian people, but rather to mainly focus on the messages that Bashar al-Assad himself had received from various world leaders expressing condolences to the Syrian people and highlighting that these leaders sent him these messages or, or, or spoke to him over the phone. Some of the leaders mentioned include uh, Mahmoud Abbas from the Palestinian Authority, President Sisi of Egypt, the leader of UAE, and the top of the list was, of course, President Putin of Russia. And so, therefore, Assad is trying to find political opportunities in this humanitarian catastrophe that the Syrian people are suffering from. Yeah, it's a it's a despicable tactic, but one that uh, is 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 effective. Uh, c- can we step back to the situation before the earthquake? Syria about seventy percent under regime control, and the international consensus has clearly shifted to, well, we're going to make our peace with this particular vicious dictator. It has been moving in that direction for some time, but. Are you at all surprised by the shift? Unfortunately, the shift towards normalizing with the Assad regime is a result of the failure of the UN-led peace process that is meant to find a solution to the Syrian conflict that involves all warring parties represented in the peace process. 
normalizing with the Assad regime, of course, means ignoring a huge component of the peace process, which is the Syrian opposition. Uh, it completely ignores their role, it ignores their uh, demands, it ignores uh, their priorities, and therefore ignores what they represent in terms of huge numbers of Syrians who do not recognize Bashar al-Assad as legitimate because of the oppressive behavior of his regime towards them. And so normalization is basically happening at the expense of the Syrian people and their best interests. The world was heading in that direction because it wasn't thinking about the best interests of the Syrians. Normalization was being uh, kind of put forward by countries that were just suiting their own individual national interests, their own security interests. Countries that, for example, want a regional role like UAE, see their position as being, let's try to be friends with everyone around us in the region so that we can be secure from threats and risk. That's why they wanted to uh, try to normalize with Assad as opposed to necessarily being keen on Assad himself or, or on his regime. And they certainly weren't thinking about the well-being of the Syrians. They were just thinking about their national priorities. The same applies to other countries in the region, uh, like Egypt and Algeria, who were kind of saying, no, we should, we should bring Assad back into uh, the Arab League. And even internationally, some people felt that the uh, peace process was going nowhere, so we might as well just normalize and get on with it, because they didn't think that the Syrian conflict actually presented much of a, of a concern for them in terms of their own national priorities. So it was, I would say, more passive normalization rather than active normalization. It's not like anyone really thought about it in a comprehensive way. And it was all directed by the interests of the other countries, not by the interests of Syrians. So that was the situation before the earthquake. Now, Assad, of course, is trying to see if the earthquake can present opportunities to push this agenda even further. And that is why I mentioned the example of the memos and the messages and the phone calls between Assad and these other world leaders, because this definitely fits within his objectives to say, look, the world has de facto recognized me as the legitimate leader of Syria. How would you describe the Biden administration's handling of the Syria file? Would passive disinterest just about cover it? The United States has unfortunately been a contributing factor to the catastrophe that we are witnessing in northwest Syria today and in terms of the Syrian conflict more generally because the United States has been increasingly disengaged from the Syria issue. The fact that the U.S. has not really developed a policy on Syria is very telling. They claim that they have a policy and that their policy is to support the U.N. peace process. But the peace process has basically been dormant for years. And the U.S. has not really, when it had the opportunity, tried to have a bilateral uh, discussion with Russia on Syria. Of course, this is now impossible because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So there were missed opportunities that the United States could have used and didn't. And as a result of that, the conflict in Syria continued. And with protracted conflict comes conditions that have increased the suffering of the Syrians in the current earthquake. Because, for example, the northwest of Syria 
remains unrecognized as in any way as legitimate by the United Nations, simply because the UN only deals with its own member states, the UN was not delivering aid straight to northwest Syria. Had there been a solution to the Syrian conflict, aid would have been delivered by the UN to northwest Syria. So you can see how the protracted conflict and the lack of political will on part of the US and others to steer this conflict to a resolution has actually contributed in an indirect way to more deaths in Syria as a result of the earthquakes. Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because the Biden State of the Nation address last week, he virtually made no reference to foreign policy whatsoever. Certainly nothing to to say about Syria and, and the wider Middle East. Um, America, as you say, has a responsibility that it, I think, has basically walked away from. But what about the UK? Uh, have we just pretty much washed our hands of Syria? Unfortunately, the UK has not had a distinct policy on Syria. The UK has generally been following the steer of the United States. And because the United States has not been, as you just said, interested in foreign policy in general, but particularly in the Syrian conflict, the UK has kind of more or less followed suit. We express concerns. We do send humanitarian aid. We do talk to the Syrian opposition. We are involved in uh, donor conferences and things like that. But none of these things will actually solve the Syrian conflict. So we just pat ourselves on the back that we are doing these things. But actually, they, they, these are not strategic moves. And we don't seem to have leverage in the Syrian conflict in the first place. With time, and I think early on we might have had some leverage, but with time, the Syrian conflict came to be captured by Russia in particular, in terms of it becoming the international actor with most clout um, when it comes to debates on Syria. And sadly, the UK has a very diminished role as a, as a result. And so, you know, I wish I could say the UK can now find an opportunity to play an assertive role in this context. But I think we lost, we lost that opportunity many, many years back. And now we just wait for a sign from Washington. And when you look at what's happening with Washington, there are divisions there, which of course will be good news for Russia and the Syrian regime. For example, the uh, Department of the Treasury in uh, the United States announced a temporary lifting of sanctions for six months um, on transactions going to Syria meant to help with earthquake relief. However, Congress is not very happy with that. And there has been a public challenge to this decision expressed by uh, members of the House Foreign Affairs uh, Committee, for example. So this kind of division inside policy circles in Washington can also only be good news for Russia and the Assad regime, because again, it weakens the United States position in the peace process. Yeah, and you make a very interesting point there, Lena, that essentially Washington and London ceded the situation to Russia without really any challenge whatsoever. I mean, Russia entered the Syrian conflict because it saw an opportunity. 
We have to remember that Russia was not there in the beginning. I mean, yes, there was always a diplomatic and military relationship between the uh, Ba'ath regime in Syria and the Soviet Union and then Russia. However, the Syrian conflict began in 2011 when it got violent. In the beginning, of course, it was a peaceful protest that the regime cracked down on, but then it transformed into a conflict because of the violent crackdowns by the regime. So it became a war, it kept intensifying, and Russia only entered this war in an active military capacity in 2015. So there were basically four years, four years in which the West in general could have done something and, and, and frankly did not. And at that time, of course, you had the Obama administration in charge, and the Obama administration uh, had as its key objective the nuclear deal with Iran. That was the main thing it wanted to achieve in the Middle East in general. And so Syria was not very high on the list of priorities. We all remember the red lines that President Obama said should not be crossed and then did nothing when they were crossed with the use of chemical weapons. Uh, we all remember words that Assad must go, uh, said by Obama, that were not followed with any enforcement of, of this on the ground in any way by the United States. So Russia was observing very keenly and saw in the Syrian conflict an opportunity to assert itself vis-a-vis -vis the United States and internationally. And then, of course, we know what happened. Russia, in a way, got away with it because there was no challenge coming from the United States to Russia. And of course, Russia used that as an opportunity to, in a way, also invade Ukraine. So the behavior that went unchallenged in Syria further empowered Russia to think it can also get away with invading Ukraine. So international politics does not operate in silos. Everything ultimately is connected. Mm, yeah, and of course, there was Crimea as well, where he just walked in and, and we let him do that. You can see why Putin felt so empowered and very interesting point you make about the war in Ukraine. Having gone into Crimea, having gone into Syria, having established his presence in places like Libya with the Wagner uh, mercenaries, he must have thought, this is an open field. The West is not challenging me. Yeah, absolutely. And you rightly point out Crimea because that happened in 2014. So even before Russia uh, entered the Syrian conflict, that had already happened. And now the West is, you know, acting surprised um, at, at, at Russia's behavior. And Russia, you know, very recently in the context of the earthquakes, uh, kept insisting that only one border crossing should be open between Turkey and Syria because it is Russia that had blocked opening more than one in the Security Council whenever there was a meeting to discuss a cross-border resolution. So Russia is feeling quite empowered even now, even in the context of all the pressure that it is feeling with the um, uh, war in Ukraine, Russia is, is, is still showing its true colors. And so the West really should not be surprised anymore. And, and, and I think the earthquakes have, again, once again, underlined who we're dealing with here in terms of Bashar al-Assad and Syria, and sadly also in terms of the passivity of the rest of the international Western actors. Mm. Now, you mentioned this before, but uh, Egypt and the UAE in particular, two Arab states that are actively engaged with Assad, um, it's not surprising at all that authoritarian leaders would welcome him back into the fold. Uh, but, you know, the war isn't over. So could cozying up to Assad come at a cost to them? Is that is that a possibility? 
Well, right now, the cost is very minimal um, because they remain also on very good terms with the West. Uh, they have very strong security ties with the West, uh, economic ties. They are considered allies in the war on terrorism, uh, for example, and therefore they are relying on that. And we have in general in the world been seeing more and more pragmatism and transactional relationships and compartmentalization of relationships between different uh, countries in the world so that you may be arguing with one country on one file, but trading economically, you know, uh, at the same time with them. And so I don't think the repercussions for them are going to be that great. The thing is, there is no international consensus on what should happen when it comes to the Syrian file. And that's why each country is basically pursuing its own national interests in a, in a very narrow, rather myopic way. Mm. And as you say, from their point of view, it's about security and uh, Syria. The situation there doesn't pose any security challenges uh, to them at this stage. Um, but, you know, there's so many international players that work in this war. You've touched on them, Russia, there's Iran, of course, Turkey, the United States still has a military presence. The Iraqis and the Jordanians share lengthy borders with Syria. The Kurds have claimed an autonomous region. Rojava, is there a path through that thicket of competing interests that would give the people of Syria some hope, Lena? I mean, unfortunately, the Syrians are getting trodden on by the interests of all the actors that you mentioned, because all those actors entered the Syrian conflict, not because they are concerned about the well-being of the Syrians, but because they saw in the Syrian conflict either a threat or an opportunity. So when it comes to Turkey, for example, they have seen in the Syrian conflict an opportunity to crack down on the PKK and allies of the PKK. For Iran, it saw in the Syrian conflict uh, or the Syrian context an opportunity to further uh, increase Iranian influence in the Levant. For the Iraqi militias that have been uh, supporting Iran in this mission, it's also because they are themselves funded by Iran and, and also are, are doing this in order to secure uh, economic, military and political goals. And I could go on. So when you are Syrian... And all those international actors are looking at your country as an opportunity either to protect themselves from threat or to further their political objectives, then you as a Syrian have no agency. And unfortunately, this remains the case today. You know, the Assad family, we did a podcast with Caroline Rose from New Lines Institute last year about the extent to which the family's running the Captagon trade. Um, kind of narcos of the Middle East. Do you think that Assad and his family will come out of this dreadful war as the winners? Is that the scenario we're heading towards? I hope not. I mean, I talk about denying Syrians agency, but the situation need not continue like this. And I hope that the catastrophe of the earthquakes makes people in diplomatic circles wake up to this reality. And the Captagon trade is also a threat to the whole world. It's, it's an example of how the Syrian conflict is not an island conflict that just affects Syrians and, and the region kind of around it. It actually has worldwide repercussions, and this is one of them. Um, of course, we had the rise of ISIS furies back. That was another example. And there's nothing to indicate that no international wave of risk is not going to happen in the future at some point. So I think... The denial of agency of, of, of Syrians is, is something that 
should not continue. The Captagon issue is something that Assad and his uh, regime need to be and must be held accountable for. Right now, the world is perhaps still busy doing other things, but ultimately all those issues are directly affecting the international community at large. And therefore, I'm hoping that there will be some sort of shift in that regard. But right now, I don't, I don't see many signs, to be honest, that that is actually going to happen, at least in the near future. It is extraordinary because if we go back, and this war has been going on for 12 years, and as you say that, certainly in the first uh, three years of that war, before the Russians came in, there was a, a consensus that Assad had to go. And yet here he is, he controls 70% of the country. You have this autonomous Kurdish region, you have the Turks have, have their enclave. The, the rebel enclave may now be, be crushed, uh, but it is, it is this uh, incredibly tangled scheme and as you say, of, of multiple interests and, and the interests of the Syrian people just aren't there. Yeah, it's 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 awful. And, and, and I think one of the possible ways out of this has to do with the role of Russia, because Russia remains the most influential international actor in this context, um, supporting uh, the regime. I think two things could work. One is if the United States and its allies who are supporting Ukraine create some sort of deal to deal with Russia, with, of course, the necessary pressure on Russia to, to make it accept the deal. That includes Russia's role regionally, not just what it's doing in Ukraine, because these things are connected. So make Syria part of the solution for Ukraine. That was the first thing I would advocate. The second thing I would advocate is dealing with Iran's regional role. For the longest time, this has been ignored by the international community because everybody was clinging on to the JCPOA, the nuclear deal. We're now seeing more and more evidence of increased military cooperation between Iran and Russia, again, against Ukraine. And that's not to mention, of course, their engagement already and cooperation in Syria and elsewhere. And so, again, dealing with Iran's regional role must become a priority for the international community. And where policies to become uh, available to deal with that issue, I think that combined with dealing with Russia would make a huge difference because this would remove a lot of the leverage that the Bashar al-Assad regime has right now. But all this requires developing political will in the West and also coming up with an actual comprehensive strategy rather than compartmentalizing the Ukraine issue and the Syrian issue. Yeah, and you wonder where that strategy will come from, because as we've talked about, uh, Biden seems utterly disinterested. Uh, the UK is not taking a leadership role. Is there a role for Europe in this? I think there's a role for everybody. But uh, ultimately, let's face it, Washington remains the uh, main actor on the side of the West when it comes to all this. Sadly, we might have to wait till the next administration after Biden. But I do know that there is growing uh, dissatisfaction in policy circles in Washington regarding Iran. And maybe that could be an entry point. And in the meantime, this war, you think, just goes on in its current kind of stagnant situation with the people, particularly in, uh, in Idlib, suffering. 
I mean, unfortunately, now a natural disaster has come to complete the work that Bashar al-Assad and his allies were already doing. Um, and I don't think this situation is going to be uh, resolved any anytime soon. And I, and I feel for the people, especially in northwest Syria, because these are people who had already lost their homes and lost their livelihoods and were just sheltering in that region. And who's going to rebuild their homes? Who's going to restore their livelihoods? Uh, there is a very bleak future ahead. Mm. All right. Well, we'll end on that rather somber note. But thank you. Thank you very much, Lena. Thank you for having me again. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Dr. Lena Hatib, who's just been appointed director of the SOAS Middle East Institute here in London. Since we launched our podcast in 2020, it's been listened to more than 120,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thanks to all our listeners, and if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, or Amazon. I hope you're enjoying our podcasts, which we bring you with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. You can support our independent voice through a donation. Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our daily newsletter and how to get a free trial. The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts, contributors like Lina. Check us out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources.